Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Rabin, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. Today we're going to have another very interesting show. We have invited back Dr. Michael Conforti of the Assisi Institute. Michael has been leading groups across the world teaching something called archetypal patterning. It's a variation from uh, his training in Jungian analysis, and he has gone far in a direction of the exploration of psyche relative to spirit and matter in a way that perhaps no other Jungian has done. He's opened up the work to people of all disciplines, in fact, all fields, and it's made for an incredibly rich tapestry of work and understanding of the nature of our psychological lives. And we're here up in Stonington, Connecticut, right after one of his programs, and it's been a real delight to be here with Michael to discuss this formidable work that, by the way, has direct application to our world at large. While, of course, it's designed to help people on their own adventure and journey of awakening up their own psychological evolutionary possibilities, on another hand, it also can be understood and applied to the collective, i.e. what it is that's going on right now right here in our world and the complexity of issues with which we are dealing. So, Michael Conforti, great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. We've been together for many years, and uh, it's a joy to be invited back and honor. Thank you so much. Absolutely. My pleasure. So, let's start unpacking this. Let's just start looking at the issue of for instance, right now, our company, uh, company <laughs> country is very heavily divided. It's being divided around economic issues. It's divided around social issues and issues even of race, things that many of us have dreamed that we have gone far beyond, but in fact, we are almost at square one. Not really, but... It approximates, at least on the level of attitude and emotional expression. How would you see the work that you've been doing for all of these years, Michael, as applicable to the situation and to help us unpack it and understand it? It's something I think about a lot because, as you say, and uh, and many of us, if we're just you know, we're feeling such a level of despair and, and grief and horror about the world situation today. And I, I don't want to globalize it, um, but what I do want to say is I think many of us just feel so so horrible about seeing these enactments that were part of the past. Everything from racial hatred, ethnic hatred, religious hatred. And you say, you know, how could it be? How could it be at this point in time that we're going back to these primitive primitive uh, behaviors. So as a pattern analyst, what you start doing is you ask, okay, what, what drives this kind of bigotry? You know, what drives like, the desire to put up a wall? Now, it's not an issue of immigration. It's not the issue. I mean, yeah, you, you, we, may, we probably do need to control immigration, probably gone too far. I got that. But as a pattern analyst, what you look at is you look at the particular behaviors, like putting a wall up, okay, for instance. Putting a wall up is, means putting a divider. That's a simple way of looking at it. 
But if you begin to translate that behavior, say what you're trying to do is to build a huge barrier between two elements, between what you see as not belonging and what belongs. Now, while there are real-life political financial implications of that, it's a deep psychological issue in that we're trying to keep away from us contents, psychological contents that we're afraid of. This is going to happen at the beginning of time. I mean, on some level, it's not that far removed from heaven and hell. You, you put the hell in the underworld, get it away from us. It's destructive. You know, we talked in the seminar just this weekend about slavery. It, it's the same thing in that we, we, we take something that we fear, we, we think is below us, and we just own them and beat them and do whatever we want to them. What's missing, and where pattern analysis comes in, is what's missing is the capacity to reflect on the symbolic and the, the, the dominant behavior that's driving this thing. Now, in this case, what would you see that as being? With the, taking with the wall, for instance? Yeah. yeah, I think with the wall, is there, there are some content, some particular, I'll name it. I think it's quite interesting that we have a president right now that wants to keep the immigrants out, and he's married two or three uh, immigrants. Right. I think it's his second or third wife that's an immigrant. His kids are considered half uh, whatever from the other countries. Slovenia. Slovenia. I mean, this to me is quite bizarre. And, you know, look, from the beginning of time, we externalize that things that we don't understand. We, we make principles, we make policies out of it. So here, you got another piece, which is, I just saw, we saw a video today of pictures of the cages. I mean, my God, where, where is the morality in this? So you also have a huge moral factor and an ethical factor that's just absent. So if, as a pattern analyst, you say number one, the main pattern is you. The main pattern is you are trying to extinguish that which you are afraid of. You want to get away from. And number two, there's no ethical or moral concern. That that's huge. A, a culture that is has the absence of morality. Oh my God. So there's this idea, absolutely true, of course. There's this idea, Michael, of externalizing, of othering, which is a, a phrase I've heard, you know, recently, of creating other separate from self. Uh, those parts of us, ultimately, as you're looking at it and as we look at it psychologically, that we don't like about ourselves, we exteriorize and project then onto that and make them wrong, for instance. In this case, it's the Central Americans, it's the Mexicans, et cetera, et cetera. And this, as you were saying, has a long historical uh, picture. This is not of recent import. This is, uh, well, actually, curiously and ironically, the entirety of the United States of America was founded by immigrants. All of us are immigrants, except... Uh, the people uh, toward whom we were acting genocidally, and that is the indigenous people. So there are a number of anomalies here in this picture. Uh, is there a way, looking at the real world uh, socioeconomic and practical conditions of having uh, a wall or not having a wall or of mediating, modifying immigration policy, how would that be influenced by archetypal pattern thinking? Well, it's a tough question. 
is there a direct <laughs> practical application to the particulars that for politicians, say you and I had access to, you know, the halls of the Senate and what we would want to say to them from this point of view okay, that could influence no, I, I got it. It, it, it helps me look at it that way. Yeah. I mean, let's take any individual that's, that's really emotionally charged around something, around whether sex, whether religion, whether finances, and, and their lives are built around and they're making a lot of policies, a lot of, a lot of energies going into that. The first thing you want to look at is okay, it, it's not necessarily the financing, the sex, or the religion. There's, there's something that's driving it. You find, okay, before you go out and do this million-dollar investment or million-dollar withdrawal, what are you involved in? What, do you, what is it psychologically you want to invest in? What is it you need to take a risk in by putting the money into this account? What is it you need to take the money out of? What do you need to be yet to start withdrawing energy from because it may not be a good investment? In other words, sort of what is the story behind the action? Exactly. What's the story behind the action and work to articulate? Because when we don't understand something, we literalize and we concretize. Mm-hmm. What, can, what has the potential to make that more of a humane gesture is to understand what's driving it, understand the backstory. Exactly. Then if you get somebody say, look, this, these are the issues, now I, I still want to move. I'll give you a simple example. Simple example. Years ago, I, I wanted to move my office to be on the water when I was in Vermont. There's a river right there. Can I go mm-hmm. And I was looking around, looking around, and I, and I found something three times the price I was paying, three times what I could afford, two times what I could afford, and I almost, almost did it. So somebody said, Mike, it seems like you want to be closer to the water. Now, it kind of seems simple, right? But it doesn't drink it, What I got was, oh, my God, psychologically, I wanted to be closer to the water, to the unconscious. I was a little too far removed from it at that point, and I was literalized. Now, the piece I want to emphasize here, this is not about making everything about your mother and father. It's not that. Patterns are universal phenomena. And... Issues of exclusion, inclusion. These are universal issues. Issues of expansion, contraction. And if one doesn't understand what's driving it, they're going to be prone to acting out, expanding, expanding, like we had in the uh, in the housing market. How many years ago? About ten, maybe fifteen years ago, when it went nuts. You know, people were getting mortgages when they couldn't afford it. Twice what they could in two thousand seven, two thousand eight. And then nobody wanted to see that you're in a point of, of un, uncontrolled proliferation. Now, psychologically, it's a better word, symbolically. Uncontrolled proliferation is about what biological uh, piece of life? It's cancer. Cancer. Cancer is the only organism that there's no death built into the cancer cell. It dies because it eats the host. So the theme of... Okay, it lives by eating the host. Yeah. And the only thing that could... It will continue to perpetuate unless it's externally exactly. killed. Exactly. And so you find there are many things in the outer world and, and behavior that mimic the uncontrolled proliferation. Right. I mean, drinking for somebody or um, the deficit in America, which is getting larger and larger and larger. Mm-hmm. Or what begins to proliferate, what begins proliferating is racial divide. And until somebody, and again, so, your language is good, until you can identify the backstory, not as a psychologist, but as somebody who's reading patterns, like uh, Alvin Thompson did years ago with Future Shock, mm-hmm. okay? He's reading 
the future conditions. He's saying these are the behaviors that are appearing on the stage right now. Let's articulate it. Because, again, if you don't articulate it, you're going to be prone to concretizing and literalizing. And repeating. And repeating. That's something that you've been saying in one way or another all weekend in this conference, which was just fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Truly. Uh, so I'm following the thread of logic, and I want to come back to concretizing in another way, uh, not as a way of missing the the reading of a situation or a backstory, but rather the application of archetypal patterning, Michael, to a real-world situation. How could, coming back to this idea, the politicians that we sit down with and discuss this with apply it to creating policy that would be more humane and provide a kind of, let's say, barrier or limitation that will allow, because if we get flooded on one hand, there are X amount of resources, and this applies, as you're kind of saying, to everything in life, proliferation on the housing market, whatever it is, uh, too much money, too little money. If there's a flooding, it's a flood, and whether it's people or fish or what have you. How do you use this intelligence and thinking pattern to create a greater understanding? So you mentioned before, uh, fear. Fear is a big dominant theme in people's lives for lots of reasons. And so if we were going to get to that backstory that we were kind of talking about, it would be, I'm afraid, you know, the people that are coming in are going to take my job or, you know, take food from my table or make my community unsafe or the language is going to change from English to Spanish, you know, in my community, or we're going to have to provide more social services, whatever. These are some of the, you could say, the shadow-based, fear-based energies behind. How do you work with that so that a reasonable policy that is a win-win for all emerges? Uh, it's not going to, I don't think it's going to be a win-win situation because the minute you call for reflection, okay, somebody's going to be stopped in the tracks. Basically, one of the things we discussed this weekend is that virtually every religious and political movement is driven by the psychology of the collective and driven by, by, the, by the zeitgeist of the times and the people in charge. And they take what's ever inside them at that particular time, and they make policy out of that. It's hard to give a direct answer, Mitch. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I see where you're going. It's it's hard because when you talk about having a certain conscious orientation, it's such a paradigm shift. I mean, for instance, let's say with our current president and the wall, there's got to be something about the foreign, what is foreign, that's very attractive, and that could be wonderful. I mean, we all we all know what it's like being in other countries, the excitement, the food, the taste, uh, the men, the women, and all, you know, it's it's the different, the other. And that's a universal thing. Exotic. Exotic, yeah. And it's a wonderful thing. 
So here's somebody who has a real uh, interest in the other. Now he's saying, I want to keep out the other. So whatever the issue inside of him has become magnified and amplified a, a billion times. So it may be a, a, some unhealthy part of him as well about the other, like bringing these people in. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff. Why do you marry foreigners and all this? It can be wonderful. It could be, it could be tragic. But when, when you don't understand that, if you're going you're gonna to make policy and what I say this way, we're going to make policy from what we don't understand. That's the problem. So, and that's why it's a difficult well, thing to say that what we would like to do is say, ask somebody, well, what about the foreign field? What about the other? Now, and I'm not trying to make it a therapy. I'm not naive at all. You know, like you, I grew up in New York and Brooklyn, and, you, know, <laughs> you know. But you still, you still pray to God that somebody could be a little bit conscious. I mean, people that go off, people, for instance, they do, um, anybody who drinks is bad. I mean, most times these people are ex-alcoholics, and, and they make a new religion out of the prohibition. You see, I'll give you a line that actually my, somebody we both know, Dr. Robert Langs, who passed away two years ago. Mm -hmm. he, he made a comment. So bring you introduced me to him many, many years ago, yeah. decades. Yeah. A brilliant end to the brilliant times. Uh -huh. He said, to paraphrase, we are not equipped to handle the vicissitudes of emotions that are inside of us. And one thing we do with things that we can't deal with, we externalize. It's out there. It's a devil. We, we had a great presentation today about the Crusades, where so much of the Crusades was about the externalization of evil and trying to, to vindicate ourselves by saying God wanted us to kill the infidels and kill the Jews and kill the Italian and kill whoever we're going to kill. Yeah. We, we can't handle this. It's like a pot that's too thin. A pot, the bottom is not going to hold. To make a good sauce, like a good four-hour sauce, you need a thick bottom pot. It's got to hold the heat and, and, and not radiate it too quickly. We don't have that. We're, we're frail. And then, as I, I've been in practice 40 years right now as an analyst. So you've been in practice almost 40 years. And you see that these eruptions of issues blow through us. You know, whether it's the eruption of, I'm going to make a policy out of this and whatever. It, it's part of your psyche. Now, it's not trying to dismiss the, the outer world issues. I and, mean, yeah, immigration is a problem. No question. Mm -hmm. But when we don't understand what some of the real issue of immigration is about, we're going to go out and make policy and we're going to get ourselves into trouble and hurt a lot of people. At least what I hear you saying in terms of even application, Michael, is understanding the underlying structure of feelings regarding something like dealing with immigration, which symbolically is dealing with other. And when we can really look at that for ourselves on a personal level, we can begin to make our way to more sound policy because it's going to become humanized because we've had to go through the humbling experience of owning our own variety of feelings about any number of different subjects regarding other Okay. No, this, this is, is very great interview because you're translating it very well. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. No, it's it's all very interesting, and I think that it has a really direct application. Uh, at the end of the day, there is a lack of humanity in so much of what goes on with humanity. Uh, I think it's a real problem. Going back to something you were saying about 
what Langs was saying about not being able to contain the vicissitudes of our emotions and feeling like, I think that's just so utterly true. And nor can we handle, and many other writers have written about this, the levels of complexity of our modern life altogether, because it's, we're not designed for that. We can sort of do a juggling act inside our, um, our own minds and being of one, two, three, maybe four different items. But when you go beyond that, we're really our literal brain structure, let alone mind. It's just not equipped. It's not equipped. You know, and we're terrified. We're not equipped and we're terrified. And, you know, what we're taught is to continue to become terrified. Exactly. So, I mean, I vote for something called education of emotional intelligence from early age. And I think that if we had more of that, um, it's, you know, someone coming into psychotherapy or psychoanalysis at age 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 or 40 or 50, you know, that's a really hard task to sort of review 20 or 30 years of life lived along a certain path and pattern and then seek to reconfigure it in some way based on the new awareness and new understanding that archetypal patterning, Jungian psychology, and other forms of therapy yield. It's a very unrealistic expectation the more I think about it. But if kids are taught to look at their feelings, the pleasant ones, as well as the uh, other ones like jealousy and envy and anger and rage, at an early age, they may learn to own them then. So they can build a scaffolding, if you will, an architecture that is like the thicker pot for a tomato sauce. You know, yeah, again, beautifully put. Let's take the situation 80 years ago with slavery. Okay, and then people may say, well, that was the past. Well, you know what? The history is repeating itself. We, we have many versions of slavery. We have something even, I don't want to say bigger, but as pronounced today with uh, the sexual slave trade. Mm-hmm. Someone was saying that um, the sexual slave trade is bringing in more money than all the, the many of the Fortune 500 companies put together. Nike, yeah. Amazon, it's insane. And then they take two-year-old little kids, three-year-old kids, they put them in a cage during the day, whatever, and they, they, they said people people come in and have sex with them, and two years old, it's insane. They live stream this stuff. So the point here is, and this is a rough piece. It's unspeakable. It's unspeakable. And the rough piece is when you're dealing with a collective, collective government, governance, policy, and Jung said it, and Freud didn't say the same thing. Freud said the herd instinct is, is a primitive animal. Jung said the herd instinct, the group psyche, is as mature as adolescent kids. You, you, I, don't, I don't really think you're going to change it. We've had some wonderful people in the world from, you know, Dalai Lama. We've had Elie Wiesel. We've had, you know, some great people that try to make changes in the world. The world, look... Shadow is always going to be there. Primitiveness, because we, the, the work of making things conscious is, is, can be brutal. I mean, do you want to look in the mirror and look at what the hell you did to somebody? 
No. You want to look in a mirror as a collective mirror and say, we took these slaves because they are black and from a, another country, and they're primitive, and they're like animals, which is what people thought, and we could own them, we could have sex with them, we could beat them and whip them when we want to, put shackles. Are you kidding me? How are you going to have a conscious understanding of that? The, the remorse. And to to go into a time to to go into somebody who's having sex with these kids? Are you kidding me? You got a fourteen year old kid that's been stolen from a family, and they service her ten times a day. Somebody's making a fortune out of her. You're dealing with psychopathy. Now people say, "Well, where's the hope?" Well, you know what? I think to be overly hopeful is to be naive and to be uh, delusional. I think it's great to have these discussions to see what could be done somewhere. And towards the end of Jung's life, you may remember the story. He had his best, you know, the most uh, advanced students around him one day and they're talking and they said, Dr. Jung, what can we do about the world situation, about peace? This is during the German, the German uprising. And he was old. During World War II. World War II, around 1930, whatever. And he said, what do we do? And he didn't do anything. He said, I'm untying his shoe. And he said, he's, he's old, he's not young. And he said, Dr. Young, um, we're asking you, what do we do about international peace? We studied it by psyche. We help people. We've done our own work. He didn't respond. He took the shoe off. And he said, will you please answer us? And he said, I just did. What did you do? I took a pebble out of my own shoe. Now, he, he said, we've got to begin somewhere. I mean, look, we've all done bad things. I mean, you know, whether our eruptions are hurt of the people you know, because of our own problems and our, our own terrors, our insensitivities, you know, you've you got to begin somewhere. And what, a great dream is to have somebody in office that has a conscience that can reflect on these things. Mm-hmm. I don't know who we've got. I have no idealizations. You know, idealizations are too costly. Reverence is wonderful. You can revere somebody and he deserves it. Idealization, you know the flip side of idealization? It's contempt. They go together. It's a heck of a yes. check you know? I, absolutely. So, can you find. And idolatry, but we're speaking about commandments today. Exactly. That's another one. Yeah. Idolatry has the dark side yeah. of contempt and disrespect. The above, yeah. I was saying in beginning to make reference in my talk yesterday at your wonderful program, Michael, that one of the other main big issues, I will actually say what I think is the biggest, is the issue of global warming that's contributing to accelerated climate change. And I see this as an assault on Mother Earth, as an assault on the feminine principle. And this is born out of, no pun intended, uh, a long-term hostility toward the feminine in principle and in practical reality driven toward women. So when you talk about, for instance, human trafficking, probably 90% of that, if not 95, I don't know the exact number, is toward females of ownership of one sort or another, domination of one sort or another, is of women or girls. And this is something of the male psyche 
that needs such serious examination. And it showed up in, you know, the African slave trade. It shows up in the job market of women getting paid a fraction of what men are paid for the same job, or even if they have a better job, they're being paid less. It's uh, literally across the board, the uh, suppression, oppression, um, and uh, aggression toward women. And we're paying a price for it. And I think the repression of being honest about that for the male is being taken out in this thing we refer to now as global warming because it's literally an assault on the body of the feminine. And uh, your comments? No, look, I agree. I'm, I'm not sure of the connection. I would not make the connection. I, I think global warming and repression of feminine. Mother Earth is no, no, the no, embodiment of no, life. It's a great connection. I, I didn't get yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I said something at a lecture about five years ago, the first time publicly. I think it really dawned on me. I didn't take the backdrop. I remember watching the debate with Obama and uh, who was it? Romney? Romney. Yep. Obama and Romney. And it was such a despicable show of masculinity. I wanted them to just take their shirts off and roll on the ground and then start fighting. Because it, it was just this, this pretense of this strutting, this, this, pathetic, this pathetic strutting of power. And I, and I said, I'm so embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the, the straw that broke the proverbial back of the camel. And I gave a lecture. I said, look, I'm going to say something right now that's kind of strange. I think in the current iteration of masculinity, we've gone as far as we can with this drama. It's you need the feminine to break it open. You know, if the feminine comes into the masculine, great. But I think we really need a woman to, you know, a woman president and all that. A good person, not just to be a woman. Oh no, but somebody really great. You need you need the shifting from this. Still, I think it's a very primitive masculine attitude. I mean, I and John, all that stuff, tried whatever. whatever. I think it was too far on the other side. Mm -hmm. But it's Mm -hmm. just a pathetic masculinity. That we're better than. I mean, I love the masculine. This is not a, you know, attempt to destroy the masculine. We're no, men. You and I love no. men. You know, we love being men and all yeah. this, whatever. Yeah. But it's a pathetic show of, of not about that at all. No, it's about a, a profound yeah. loss of balance between the principles totally. of masculine and feminine yeah. between us all. Yeah. And there's an over masculination, if you will, of of the feminine, of, of women in many ways, too, but it's it's compensatory. Because we you don't know? get it. That's the point. We don't right. get we don't get these archetypes. We don't get these forces that are driving through us, and we enact it. Because the man then is either too much of the John Wayne, or they become too feminized. The the woman becomes too whatever, and, yes. and they lose something beautiful about their okay. nature, feminine nature, whatever that really is. Right. But the, the point is, we don't. Okay. We need a new educational system. You're right. Bring it to school. The education is around some universal dynamic. Yes. Can can one really go around and speaking the way some of these politicians speak? I mean, for instance, I think this piece is true. What's the vice president? Mike Pence? Okay. Now, Mike Pence was making policy against homosexual marriages and all this, right? And I think he said, I believe he's the one that said his state was okay to refuse um, marriage. Well, not only marriage, but even you could, a storekeeper could refuse serving uh, the homosexual. Oh, okay. Do you know the backdrop to that? 
Apparently, he went through conversion therapy. Because, himself. Yes, because he, the story has it, and I think it's 80, 90% true, that he was afraid he was homosexual. So he went through conversion therapy to try to extinguish homosexual desires. You, you want a better example of externalizing what's in the call his wife and not his mother. I think, and his mother. I think, no, I think he calls his wife mother. Oh. But you, you get the point. I mean, that's and that's perfectly normal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, please go on. But you, you get the point that you make yes, policy of what you cannot deal with internally. Come on, and who you brutalize? There's no ethics in this. There's no ethics. There's no morality. So you're going to go and attack all these wonderful people that are, are making your life like everybody else, but because they're homosexual, you're going to go after them, and you're going after them for one reason. Because you're going after your own inside, inner homosexual thing that you, you're terrified because of. you have an issue with that. Yes, which you're trying to forbid. Your issue. You're trying to and forbid. And externalizing, and that's a perfect example. It's a, it's a beautiful example. Of you want to forbid it in your life, so now you're going to forbid it in your state. Get out of here. How dare you? And on some level, you want to go even tougher, man? Now you get the Brooklyn coming yeah, I was going to say, I sound like we're um, with the Brooklynese fella. <laughs> to try to make this conscious for somebody would be brutal. Okay. Now the next piece is to, to say to somebody, "How dare you?" On, on a deep ethical, spiritual level, how dare you? We cannot afford to take our own pathology, our own terrors, and make policy out of it. To make policy out of it and hurt people. Where is it? Where's the reflection? Where's the, the Humility, where's the ethical and moral response? Jung said every meaningful treatment has got to involve the moral factor. We don't have it. And Jung and Freud debated morality. Freud said it came from the the tribal fathers. Jung said, where'd they get? (laughs) And Jung came out and said, it's inborn. And it is inborn. Doesn't mean we do it all the time. There's actually a body of literature in the world of philosophy, uh, among other uh, interdisciplines. That says that morality is biologically programmed in, and it, you know, it's it's literally inborn, as Jung was saying. So, isn't it a great example about it? Is yes, it really is. It's exemplary. You brutalize so many people because of what you're fighting with inside yourself, and and how dare? And and there's no stopgap. That we don't have anything in place that we could stop this. That's, that's terrifying. That's a, that's a runaway train. That's right. That's right. Well, on one hand, it means that we don't have democracy, <laughs> among many other things. And how about the hundreds of thousands of millions of people who die in wars that are perpetuated by this United States? Because, again, it's a projection of otherness and our not wanting to be honest about our own feelings and our own confusions about things. So I'm going to just distill a lot of this brilliant stuff you're sharing here, Michael, and into a phrase or two, because simplicity is genius. And uh, I'm going to attempt. Uh, Really, it's owning the shadow, which in non- technical terms, is owning the variety, the full array of one's feelings, impulses, instincts, thoughts, 
all of it and say, these are all part of me. They are circulating around inside me. Some I really embrace. Many I don't. They are here. They are present. They are in my heart and my chest. I can let go of them, but I better darn acknowledge them. Is that a fair thing? It's exactly right. And then again, it depends not to harp on that, but is it model and understanding? If, if he, and as one person and many people in similar situations, could say, where is, what is making this such a driving force in my life? Hitler. I mean, we, we talked about Hitler this weekend quite a bit. Hitler with the idea of racial purity. There was something in his psyche, or maybe in the German psyche or his own psyche, that he wanted to extinguish. Okay, that's going to be okay. You just want to do it. Take a shower. Take a shower or go to, go to something and find out what it was. You know, find out what it is that is so despicable in your psyche that maybe there is a real inferiority in your psyche. Yes. We all have some. That's okay. It's okay, or and we work on it, hopefully, whatever. But when you make not only public policy, but then you make the world to pay for your issues. Look, let me take this with this one. Well, <laughs> Go personal. When we have a, let's say you have a, um, say you have a problem with alcohol or drugs, or say gambling, or um, emotional eruptions. Do you know how many people we hurt with that? You realize how many people we hurt, our children, our loved ones, uh, and how we're hurt by other people that do it? And some you got to say, I'm sorry, man. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that my eruptions hurt you, and maybe I ruined something. Maybe the parent who's an addict can be able to say to the kid, I never attended any of your games because I was hungover. I'm sorry. I've got a case I worked on, for, I'm still working on. The guy's father never came to one of his baseball games, never came to any of his, his drum performances, whatever, because the father had his seat at the bar. We know Mr. So-and-so. He likes that martini at 4 o'clock. He likes to try. Oh, come on, you know. Yeah. How do you look at yourself and say, I am so sorry, man. I'm so sorry that what I did hurt you. And it may be it, it, it may be irretrievable, the relationship. It may be as a result of this. Hope. Apology and forgiveness stretch us beyond our ego. It stretches us to the depth of self and brings us to a proper position for humans, which is that of humility. <laughs> Something we don't like, and yet we so deeply need. Right? It's just, yeah. Great conversation. In part, it is distressing because did we hope that we're going to hit that level? That's right. That's right. Moses said, "Michael, I walk with the lowly, walking close to the ground," which is another expression of the etymology of humility. Humbleness is connected to the earth and being low. Well. I'm saying I'm sorry. Yes, I did this. Exactly. Owning, owning, owning. To hurt all these people because you're in, we do it. Those that go to therapy, those that go to confession, whatever, hopefully you say at some point, I'm, I'm really sorry for the evil, for the, for the harm I've done to others. And then you, look, we all suffer this. And then you say, I'm so sorry. I hope you got it. They come back at times. These issues come back. It's part of it. But the big thing is there's no stop gaps. 
uh, when it comes to global political issues, there's hardly any stop gaps. You know, from the overfishing of whales to the, the killing of people to the sex trade, who's stopping it? Now, I find um, one of the major people involved in the sex trade, one of the leaders trying to help out, that one of the reasons why there's not more funding to help out with this is many Washington insiders are involved in it. It makes sense. If, if, if this was a, a cancer, you know, we're going after all of the opioids right now. We, we put a lot of money into the treatment of opioids and all that. Why is it a fortune being put into it? you got people having sex with 12-year-olds, two-year-olds. Give me a break. I was in D.C. about four years ago. Okay. It said during the time of the actual conference, they were live streaming in one of these sites uh, sex with a two-year-old. Live streaming it. Unbelievable. And we have the technology to stop all this. Oh, and we have the force of law as well. So it's not happening. I want to close with something that is in the midst of this shadow-based dialogue. A ray of hope. <laughs> a ray of light, I'll say And it's the paradox, Michael, of life itself. You know, when it rains and thunders and even hails all night, the next morning is sunny and fresh and the air is clean. It's got all these negative ions in it. The sun is beaming and beckoning us toward life. What a crazy thing. So even though you and I spend and your wonderful students at the Assisi Institute are very deeply committed to understanding the underbelly of our psyche, individual and collective, there's this paradox we all live. And that is we want to go out fishing, man. We want to go have fun. We want to play basketball and soccer and tennis and hop on our bikes and express love to our loved ones and laugh and all the things that are part of our human experience. So we live with this paradox, exactly. And that is life. That is life. You can be sure that, well, let me put it this way. In the Jewish tradition, it is what's called a mitzvah. That is an obligation to God to be happy. It's a responsibility of each individual to be happy. So you say, well, how can I be happy under these circumstances? Find a way. And it's our literal obligation as a sacred union with God to do so. Kind of interesting, huh? You know, I, I've loved Eli Wiesel's work for many years. And in his autobiography, he, tell, he tells the story in the autobiography. I think it's called All Rivers Run. It's a two-volume set. All Rivers Run to the Sea and the Sea is Never Empty. Of the, um, the bris of his son. 
Uh, he never believed. He, he was in the camps, you know. He he thought even after he got out of the camps, that was the best he could do. That was his life. Thank God he got that far. Then years later, he fell in love. Oh, my God. I never thought I'd get this far. Have a baby. Oh, my God. You know, it's like all these unimaginable things happened to him, which are incredible. And the day of the bris came and all he was, you know, I think Riverside Drive was living in Manhattan, right? Mm-hmm. All the people he loved were there. All the people were on the phone from all over the world and, and whatever. And then the, the, the Hasidic Jews are singing and enjoying Mazel Tov and be celebrating. And then he, all of a sudden, he writes in the story. He said, wait a minute. I'm giving my father's name to my son. My father's dead. I watched my father. I watched my father die in front of me. And my mother, who sang me lullaby. And, and Rabbi said, stop, stop, stop. It, it's written in the commandments. You have to celebrate. Oh, you're right, right. No, he, he never forgot, right? He, he knew the, the commandment better than anybody. He was with Moses. <laughs> so anyway, the rabbi said, oh, you're right, right. And then they start singing and dancing. And they said, why, why am I bringing another child? Why am I bringing a child into the world with what's going on? And, and start the train coming down the hill, right? And his wife finally came in. Interesting. She said, honey, can I talk to you? Because the rabbis couldn't stop him. His own emotions couldn't stop. It was a runaway train. And his wife said, honey, if we don't celebrate the birth of our, our son, we adore him. One of our We let them win again. They win. The Germans win again. We cannot let them win. Let's celebrate the life of our child. So, do I celebrate? I have been much as You and I are going fishing in about twenty minutes. You know, we're going on a boat to fish right here in in, uh, in the Atlantic Ocean. And we've had a wonderful meal. We have wine. We have food. We lobsters, lobsters, loving our life, and all that great stuff. And at the same time, there's this other piece. And Jung said it's not about happiness. He said it's about a meaningful life. And to make meaning of the suffering. And that doesn't mean to shiver the rest of your life and be miserable at all. But to, to find a balance. So, the Elim Mizel story is pretty powerful. Isn't it? Very powerful. And I'm with Jung. I agree with that completely. And my clients and students know it. That's the focus. And uh, with that, I disagree with the Jewish tradition. <laughs> Maybe even with God. I don't know. But when you see him or her, right? When you see a beautiful smile of a child or a baby and the glistening in the eye, it's something that, right? And even though our human history is so saddening and heartbreaking, there's also the beauty of it all. There's the beauty. And Michael Conforti, you have helped to contribute to the beauty of my life. I want to tell you that. You've been a meaningful part of it. Indeed. And we're only 43 each. How did we do that one? We met in the womb. (laughs) Thank you again for being on. We'll have you back again. And... We'll discuss scheduling, and uh, I want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening today. Remember, we are a nonprofit, a 501c3. Your donations and contributions keep us on the air and uh, sustained, so we so appreciate it. 
just contact me at mjr at abetterworld.net. That's my initials, mjr at abetterworld.net. And also share your thoughts and comments with me. I love hearing from you about the different shows that we do here on A Better World. Share them with your friends and family. Just forward the links so they too can get the uh, pleasure and the advantage of uh, getting this kind of inspiring education. I sure hope it is for you. We also have a series of different services at abetterworld.tv and at mitchellrabin.com. And you go there to check them out and also sign up then for our free newsletter if you're not already on it, where you can hear about the shows every week on radio and on TV. You can see both, hear both from our our uh, website. And I want to just thank you all again. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. And I look forward to seeing you all next week. Thank you.